Do you want to know more about how you can eat for better health and longevity and how to advise patients based on sound evidence so they can reduce the burden of chronic disease through diet and lifestyle? Then you're in the right place. We aim to bring you all the latest evidence on how a plant-based diet can improve your health, the health of your patients and our planet, not to mention the animals we share it with. I'm Claire Day. And I'm Daisy Lund. We are both plant-based doctors with a passion for improving nutritional education. We're so excited to be presenting this podcast where we will be interviewing experts in the field, reviewing evidence, sharing our journeys and recipes to help you on your own journey to eating more plants. So welcome to In A Nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of In A Nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on the topic of fish and how fish fits into individual diets and wider planetary health issues. We chose this subject as there was a recent article in Cambridge University Press entitled, Are We Running Out of Fish? Fish Health and Sustainability, which talks about the lack of sustainability considerations in the majority of dietary guidelines. Yes, and I think, plus, I was interested in delving deeper about fish because you know Claire in various consultations with patients they tell me that they replaced red meat with fish or chicken and I really wanted to explore the health benefits and risks. So we know that a 100% whole food plant-based diet is healthy and associated with some of the lowest risks of chronic illness including the big ones like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and obesity. We also heard in one of the recent episodes with Dr Alan Desmond that a whole food plant-based diet can also be helpful at reducing the risk of things like colorectal disease, especially colorectal cancers and polyps. So the evidence available suggests that fish is not necessary in a healthy plant-based diet. My question then to you would be, why do the NHS guidelines and the British Dietetic Association recommend two portions of fish a week, one of which should be oily, for example? Yes, because they do recommend that. It's it's everywhere you look on all the sort of NHS websites. And I think we've got to be mindful of the fact that a lot of what finds its way into population guidelines, it's based on the reality of how people currently eat, what they're familiar with and what's available to them rather than the potential in our diet. So when you look at a guideline, it can be based on instead of, so that's a way of reducing people's reliance on an unhealthy food, such as processed meat. And they're also likely to be mindful of the fact that eating a couple of portions of fish is currently the easiest advice for people to get omega-3s. And those are the nutrients which we'll go on to discuss and which there are, there are other ways of sourcing. So I think like the recommendation for just five portions of fruit and vegetables a day rather than seven or nine, it's mm. a population-based approach and looking at how to sort of improve the health of people overall rather than how you might maximise your health through a range of measures as an individual. But Daisy, are you able to cover whether those of us who are 100% plant-based and don't want to eat fish for other reasons would improve our health if we, say, added fish to a whole food plant-based diet? 
Yeah, and what we don't know is whether adding fish to an otherwise healthy whole food plant-based diet would improve health further. So the studies um, that we have only compare eating fish with a generally omnivorous diet. So where we know that eating fish, for example, is better than eating red or processed meat. Um, But there aren't any studies comparing, say, a whole food plant-based diet in addition to fish. So a person that eats fish instead of, say, red meat might improve their health with that step. It's a good first step to make. But a person eating fish instead of, say, legumes or, you know, nuts and seeds and beans may actually not really be doing that much more benefit. So in other words, the suggested benefits of fish may not actually be from from fish itself, but from what we've removed or replaced it in the diet with. Um, There was a study to suggest that there is some evidence that plant protein might be a better source of protein than fish. There was quite a large study, the Nurses Health Study and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, which included over 85,000 women and 46,000 men. And that showed that replacing just 3% of protein from fish with plant protein reduced the risk of overall mortality by up to 6%. I mean, that's one study, but it clearly demonstrates that choosing plant proteins uh, might actually be better for us than than fish protein. Mm. So where does the idea that fish is good for us come from then? Yeah, so most of the benefit of fish is attributed to the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids that are found in oily or fatty fish, rather than just fish in general. And the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids are well known. It can lower things like heart rate, blood pressure, can lower your triglycerides, certain fats in the blood. And as a result of that, you have better endothelial function, better effects on cardiovascular health, and some effects on brain health as well. So don't we have to eat fish for the benefits of the omega-3 fats? That's a great question. And I'd like to just start by saying that before I went plant-based, I didn't know that fish are not the natural sources of omegas. So fish actually obtain their omegas from eating the marine algae. So a bit like B12 in meat, and we talked about B12 on a previous episode, the animals are sort of the middleman here. Uh, The nutrients that we need are not essentially found in the animal flesh Um, they're consumed by the animals and then we eat them via um, that source so why not just bypass the middleman we we don't need to eat fish necessarily to obtain omegas Um, and omegas are something we're going to go into in a little bit more detail so Claire can you tell us a little bit more about the different types of omega fats and where we can obtain them if we wanted to on a solely plant-based diet so there are three types One is short-chain, alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, and two long-chain, docosahexaenoic acid, DHA, and icosapentaenoic acid, EPA. Gosh, Claire, that's a mouthful you did. (laughs) I'm not going to say them again. Um, So we'll we'll refer to them by their acronyms going forwards. (laughs) So... ALA is essential and you've got to get that from the diet and fortunately it's easily found in plant foods and examples are going to include chia seeds, flax seeds, same as linseeds, hemp seeds and your favourite daisy, walnuts. Yeah, I love walnuts. I eat them I think pretty much every day. (laughs) 
Good. Yeah. So we were talking about this. I was sort of saying I I eat the uh, the Brazil nuts rather yeah. than the walnuts, but um, I could I could be persuaded to switch over for these uh, for these benefits. Well, if you do, Claire, top it up with the little dried apricots, and that's a perfect afternoon snack. Apples. <laughs> that's good. So, yeah. So the recommended daily allowances can be met easily with one to two tablespoons of chia or flax seeds, um, a couple of tablespoons of hemp seeds, or about 30 grams of walnuts. How many walnuts would that be? Oh, I don't know. I should measure them. A good handful I tend to eat most days. Um, And do you eat things like chia and flax? I know we've mentioned them before, but what are the good ways of incorporating those in our diet? So, um, so flaxseed, I definitely put in my porridge. um, So I have that ground up. And uh, chia seeds, it's a good alternative, but I tend to use that more if I'm making a, you know, a sourdough bread or something, I'll chuck in some chia seeds. Um, Or, you know, we've talked about if you, you know, if you make a flapjack or something, a treat, you can always pack in chia seeds to that. Yeah, I keep meaning to make a chia pudding, actually, um, mixing it with some milk and fruit, but um, never sort of get around to doing that. It's, I guess, a nice alternative to soya yogurt or something like that after a meal. Yeah, yeah, the 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 chia cacao pudding is a is quite a famous one amongst the uh, plant based, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, good good options there for obtaining things like for obtaining the essential omegas. And what about the long chain ones, um, Claire? The DHA and EPA that you mentioned. Yeah, so both of those are usually obtained from fish, which, as we mentioned themselves they obtain their DHA and EPA from marine algae Mm. and interestingly the body the human body can convert ALA to DHA and EPA but the rate of conversion varies and it may reduce with age so there's some evidence to suggest that if DHA and EPA are not being obtained from the diet there is an increase in the efficiency of conversion from ALA Now, there remains uncertainty as to whether there is a benefit for everyone on a plant-based diet to take DHA and EPA directly or to rely on the conversion from ALA. We heard a lot at VegMed about omega-3s and our cardiologist speaker, Emma Copsey, said she would recommend supplements as part of a plant-based diet in her cardiac rehabilitation clinics. And we also had Brenda Davis, um, dietitian speaking, who said that older adults may not convert ALA efficiently to EPA and DHA. And so she was also advocating microalgae-based supplements, although not one in particular, Um, but her dose was coming out at around the 400 to 500 milligrams that we discussed. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first actually um, converted to plant-based diet, I did take a supplement. Um, I haven't really for a while, but I think given the the current evidence and having listened also to another podcast recently Claire um, if listeners do uh, also tune into Simon Hill's uh, podcast The Proof um, he actually recently had Professor Philip Calder on uh, who's a professor of nutritional immunology but has had years of research on fatty acids in particular um, and he also recommended people who are not eating fish be that for ethical or environmental reasons to take a supplement so um, definitely would recommend it in pregnancy uh, and for older adults but possibly for for the general population as well I think what was interesting about what um, Professor Calder said was to take the supplement during or with your meals which is something I'm going to start doing absolutely and um, and you know we, we don't want to get too much into the dose because I think um 
we're, we're not sure of the science here, but um, he was saying I would take a higher dose. But when I looked at what supplements were available, it seems that there really is a relationship between the dose of supplement and how much it costs. So it depends how invested you are in the idea of taking these um omega-3s because it's going to cost you more if you want to go for a high dose recommendation if they seem like a bargain they're simply likely to be a lower dose and some are dose such that one tablet a day is enough and others you might think oh this looks good I've got 80 tablets but you have to take four of them a day to get kind of anywhere near the, the baseline dose yeah and so just to clarify we're talking about supplementing DHA and EPA which we can get in vegan form um, from you know, as you say, from most health food shops or, or online. I used to buy one actually from my vegan um, website, Omega 3 Plus, and that had 250 milligrams of DHA and 125 milligrams of EPA. But I might look at higher doses. Have you found an alternative, Claire, with a higher dose? There's a there's a company called Norsan who sell Omega 3 oils, and they sell um a liquid form, which is really high dose. I think that was two grams, so 2,000 milligrams a day. But it would cost you something like £24 to get 20 doses of that. So that's around 240 a day. Um, their capsule is slightly better value. It's about £19. But again, it wasn't mm-hmm. a like-for-like dose. So it's, it gets really confusing. About the cheapest that I saw were the ones from Holland and Barrett because they're mm-hmm. always doing a deal. So yeah. they had three for two on their sets of 30 capsules and that was a once a day formula. So if you bought them now, when we're recording this, it was 90 capsules for about £28. So that works out about 31p a day, um, which right, yeah. if, if it's the right good. thing to do, it's all right. But I, I just think, you know, we w- there's a range of... Mm-hmm. Um, knowledge on this and there's a range of 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 what you might want to invest and um you know and and definitely also at VegMed when we were talking about omega-3s came back to this idea that perhaps vegans are much more more efficient at converting ALA so there was a suggestion that there's a study that shows that they convert ALA at a rate of 140 times that of meat eaters well I mean, that sounds promising if you're eating enough cheer and flaxseed, but we're just not sure. And, and to be honest, we would rec- recommend this rather than looking for plant sources of DHA and EPA, which which you can find in things like seaweed, nori, or even things like spirulina. But the amounts in these foods can be really variable. Um, and so we, we don't know if that's providing a consistent amount. So why not take the supplement? And certainly we would recommend a supplement if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, um, if you're a plant-based child or plant-based older adult. The question mark, I think, remains about whether the middle subgroup, so um, if you don't fall in those categories, whether anyone else should be taking this supplement or not. And then those people, some may have adequate conversions of their ALA to DHA and EPA, and they may not need a supplement. So the science is not completely there yet. And I think for now, we need to make decisions on an individual basis. So it sounds quite complicated. Maybe it's just easier to eat fish. What's the problem? So I think there are genuine concerns over high levels of contamination by heavy metals, such as mercury and other pollutants. Fish may not be as safe as we we think it is. Really, you know, we know that w- the waters are increasingly polluted by human action. So, I think all the industrial pollutants, 
I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, but PCBs, such as polychlorinated biphenols and dioxines, these are industrial pollutants, and we're finding them more and more in our waters. And don't forget, with the food chain, they get more and more concentrated in the larger fish, the fish that are eaten, for example. Um, And I used to find it really strange, especially during my GP training, when I remember my trainer saying to me, oh, don't forget to tell pregnant women to minimize their intake of fish, particularly things like tuna, for example, due to mercury levels. Uh, And the levels of mercury in in fish can affect the development of the fetal brain. And I remember thinking, gosh, why, why am I just telling this to pregnant women? Like, why doesn't this advice extend to everyone else? If there's an issue with mercury content in the fish that we're eating, does that not apply to everyone? Um, So, you know, I think given the rates of cancer are are on the rise globally and environmental toxins have been implicated in that, would it not be best just to reduce our exposure to these toxins or keep that exposure as low as possible? Um, So I think, you know, just being very cautious, I don't think fish is always as safe as we think it may be. And um, there are also concerns over microplastics in fish, for example. Yeah, and I think the microplastics are a source of potentially toxic chemicals in themselves, the BPAs, and they are known to disrupt the endocrine system. And PCBs that we've spoken about have been linked to an increased re- risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And the sad thing is that the fishing industry itself is a major contributor to plastic pollution of the ocean. And that all comes when fishing gear gets abandoned. You see the nets and the um, boys and things washed up on the beach. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people think of plastics and, and the sort of, you know, plastic straws that are now banned, but actually the majority of plastic in the ocean is is fishing gear that's abandoned. So, so you know, some people will say to me, well, what about farmed fish then? Is that better overall? Uh, does it contribute less to contamination? But, you know, farmed fish reminds me a bit of farmed animals, farmed land animals. You know, you've got high numbers of fish cramped into small areas and just like it in in land animals you know you can increase the risk of infection the spread of diseases and you know farmed fish there's a massive overuse of antibiotics pesticides and disinfectants to try and prevent disease so you know not to mention that the fact that they're drawn out of the food chain so feeding wild fish to say farm salmon as feed is a very inefficient food system Farms are not great environments to keep creatures, to be honest, and antibiotic resistance is an ever-going problem in the animal agricultural industry, fish farming included. We can touch a little bit on antibiotic resistance here, but we know that when antibiotics are overused, uh, and 40 to 70% of antibiotics globally are sold for use in animals, this can cause or be a major contributor to antibiotic-resistant infection in humans. Um, You know, and as a GP, it actually terrifies me to think that we might be entering an era where patients who might have infections that we could once treat, we may not be able to find antibiotics that are suitable because of resistance. In fact, we've already encountered this problem and it's only going to get worse. Um, In 2016, the Prime Minister back then commissioned a review actually on antibiotic resistance. And that review suggested that globally, 700,000 lives are lost annually from antibiotic-resistant infections. And by 2050, the review suggested the number could be as high as 10 million. So it's, it's really quite scary, actually. I think we take antibiotics for granted right now. And there are some studies, actually, that demonstrate that in gut microbiomes of people who eat plant-based or who are vegan, 
have got lower levels of bacteria that are antibiotic resistant or have antibiotic resistant genes compared to omnivores. So I think, you know, antibiotics are important and they are very valuable and we must never forget that in our use of them. So we're talking about farmed fish and I think it's interesting to at least think about the superiority of some fish when it comes to evading our efforts to farm them. Recently, we've seen the plight of octopuses highlighted as after years of research, they found a means of a commercially viable octopus farm due to the high value of octopuses. That's not because it's going to produce a sustainable food source or do anything to address sort of global malnutrition. Um, They're generally only eaten in higher income countries. So octopuses are these solitary creatures who spend most of their lives in darkness, but by artificially exposing them to more light and accepting just a a higher mortality at that stage in their reproductive cycle than you'd normally expect, they think that they're going to be able to farm them. Mm. And um, this actually reminded me of a book that I read called The Gospel of the Eels by Patrick Svensson, which is by a Swedish journalist and it reflects on the eels' struggle for survival and their dwindling numbers. And it was quite distressing to hear of the efforts of researchers to study them as they have a particularly elusive reproductive cycle. They famously travel to the Sargasso Sea to spawn and they live for around 20 years before they do that, just under a rock in, in, in freshwater streams, before they undergo this journey, which includes an actual physical metamorphosis. So in that journey, they develop really large eyes so that they can see at depth and their intestines all but disappear at the expense of developing their reproductive organs. Mm. And when they've tried to keep them in captivity, they haven't been able to work out what the larvae eat to get them to the very early glacial stage and any repeated effort to get them to that stage has always resulted in death Mm. um there was a more successful effort with some sort of ground up shark's egg feed and um they produced only male glacials and so they started adding estrogen to the feed and as you can imagine not only the rates of mortality but the deformity were particularly high And they are nowhere close to producing fully-fledged eels in captivity. Like with the octopuses, this quest is going to be driven by the commercial value of eels in certain countries. But there still seems to be this argument that runs that if we understand these creatures better, we can protect them. And this is even one criticism I would make of Patrick Svensson's book, which is quite philosophical about nature and consciousness at times, yet it refers to a succession of horrific scientific efforts with a note of this may be part of the key to their survival, um, which of course does not counteract the fact that they do a whole lot better, Mm. these creatures, when we just leave them alone and don't destroy their habitat. So Claire, this book, it seems to have had quite um, an impact on you. Was the story about just trying to understand the eels or was it about actually farming them? Well, it's about a, a man's relationship with his father and how he sort of writes trying to understand his his father's love of eels, which was which was mainly a love of eating them, but also with some compassionate aspects as well. Mm. Um, and he can't talk about all this without talking about the 
incredible life cycle of the eel, which really is fascinating. And also, as I say, I think elusive is the word for it because there's still so much that isn't understood and they haven't been seen to reproduce. And they, you know, it talks about them taking them out to the to the sea at different stages in cages and that not being a successful way of of helping them to reproduce um they just can't do it when you interfere with them they yeah. just refuse to behave normally the very act of observing them upsets something in their system yeah i mean i think you know animals in the sea are a lot more complex than we than we realize i mean i think a lot of people don't even think still don't believe that fish can feel pain and things like that and that's scientifically mm. proven now that they can so very complex creatures aren't they they're not just a protein source as we like to uh, talk about yeah I mean I think the the book actually talks about even other types of creatures that are that that we, we haven't even known about in our lifetime because although they've been around for millions of years they've become extinct in the last couple of hundred of years because of the way that we've sort of gone forward with fishing mm. um and I think on on a slightly different note, but nevertheless about sea creatures, there's currently a call from environmentalists to protect something called the horseshoe crab, which is actually more like a spy. It's more closely related to a spider, but it lives in the sea. Yeah. And these creatures have been unfortunate in that humans have discovered that their blood can be used by the pharmaceutical industry to detect endotoxins. So it's extremely valuable to be used in millions of tests and it's it's an important test to do because it it checks for endotoxins which are poisons inside bacteria cells which can make people very ill but there are other ways of doing it there are synthetic means that you could use you just need to develop them further and and rely on agreeing on some regulation because they've basically extracted them so heavily from the sea You've got this creature that's been around for 450 million years. It was there before the dinosaurs were around. And they've really declined in numbers to the Mm. point where it's also affecting seabirds, um, Mm. which rely on eating their eggs as a food source. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something where you've got people working in the pharmaceutical industry. So on that one, they've gone, well, I like seabirds. I like bird watching. Let's make a change. But it's a very small change within the big picture of how we see using sea creatures. Yeah, and, and that really highlights how everything in, in nature is linked, isn't it? How it's all, uh, the whole ecosystem, you you'd sort of mess with one part and it has repercussions further down the line. So, I mean, we did want to talk a bit, didn't we? We wanted to focus a little bit on the important issue of fishing and the environment. Yeah, definitely. I think um, just touching on the ecosystem, you know, fishing is damaging the environment on a huge scale, um, our current fishing practices are not sustainable and you know we're going from one crisis to the next in terms of maintaining stocks of fish species um, 90% of global wild fish stocks have been overfish or fished at capacity and with an increasing global population it's not good from a sustainability perspective so the consumption of fish whether farmed or wild fish is, is still rising as fast as well, twice as fast as global human population. So I learned a lot about fishing over the last few years. I I didn't really know much about it as a topic. And again, as with all these things, when you research and read and and watch and learn more, you actually become horrified horrified to hear um, about certain practices. There's a practice called bottom trawling. I'm, I'm sure some listeners have heard of it. 
essentially is what it describes. So you're dragging large, massive weighted nets across the seafloor. And, and this is in an effort to catch as much fish as possible. So, you know, I've got this, people have got this romantic view of a fisherman with his, you know, his rod and his line, but massive industrial fishing is not like that. You have bottom trawlers just traversing the oceans. And, and this is just terrible for marine life. You know, it causes the capture of so much fish and, as you say, other animals that aren't going to be eaten, for example. Nothing, you know, this is what they call bycatch. So um, the the additional catch that isn't going to be eaten. Um, there are creatures that are just evolved to be on this on the seabeds and they can't swim away. So all these nets drag them in, you know, they get dragged into the nets. And not only are they dragged into the nets, but the nets are disturbing that marine sediment. And little, I did not know this, but this, apparently the marine sediments are the world's largest carbon sink. So, you know, we think about forests and carbon, but the seabed is the world's largest carbon sink. So once you drag the nets across that, you disrupt that, we're releasing huge quantities of carbon. And that's obviously contributing to ocean acidification and climate change. And there are some estimates that this practice of bottom trawling causes the same rise in carbon emissions as the entire aviation industry put together. So really horrifying um, data that's coming out from that. And of course, as we've discussed before, you know, once you've caused so much damage to those creatures, even if they've survived to any extent, they can't usually reproduce and so it really harbours any efforts to replenish or rebuild fish stocks and doesn't allow for that kind of marine life recovery. And I think even if we weren't doing this bottom trawling, you can think about the carbon emissions and the effect that they have on the ocean because um, the land carbon emissions are causing the ocean to acidify 10 times faster than, than at any point in the last 65 million years. And an article that caught my eye last month in the Financial Times was that in July, we had really hot temperatures up to about 38.4 degrees off the coast of Florida. And Mm. that's a real problem for those coral reefs that are sitting out there. They're fixed. Um, A reef can't move. It can't move to cooler waters as some other fish might do. They can't tolerate such high temperatures. So scientists were sort of left collecting samples to save parts of the important species, taking them off to tanks that were cooler. And um, they knew that the warming was going to persist until October. So there wasn't really going to be a lot of regeneration. So once again, you know, it's a story of talking about how without human help and these sort of well-funded rescue efforts that aren't available all over the world I mean this was in America so there was there was money available then you know they're needing that helping hand to survive and it feels so tragic given it's our hand that's caused these things in the first place if you look at what's caused the climate change but when we think about the importance of saving those coral reefs we know that they might make up only one percent of the ocean floor but they are so important they provide a home to 25 percent of marine life And we can see them as sort of like the tropical rainforests of the ocean. More generally, warming oceans is a huge problem because when they warm, they lose their ability to absorb oxygen. And it's the oxygen that's dissolved in the water that's so important for the larger fish. And once they are swimming in waters that don't have enough oxygen, 
then thousands of them can die out in days. One of the other things that I was looking at, it caught my eye because of one of the things that I buy online offers replanting of seagrass meadows instead of, say, you know, the, the, the sort of offsetting of carbon emissions that you're, you know, planting trees and things that you're sometimes offered. Now, I thought about this and I thought, I don't actually really know what these seagrass meadows are and what's causing them to decline and, and why that matters. But you've looked this up for me, haven't you? Yes, the seagrass um, meadows are a very important part of the ecosystem and they're important for biodiversity, but also, as you mentioned, a carbon store. Um, unfortunately, they have been significantly degraded in the UK. Um, estimates are much as up to 40 to 90 percent or more since 1936. So these meadows in the sea are, are mostly destroyed by sewage and nutrient runoff. And you know, there are, on a more positive note, lots of restoration projects, and these can help sequester carbon, but obviously they're expensive. And once again, this all comes back to looking at agriculture more widely and how we can manage our sewage better and how to halt destruction. So I know we've talked a lot about, um, well, I say a lot, but more than we normally would on this podcast about environmental impact and sustainability and moved a little bit away maybe from just diet on this particular episode but I think it's really important I don't think we can have a conversation about fish and well-being and health and our planet without talking about these things and, and raising awareness do you agree yeah absolutely because none of it is straightforward it's all stuff that you need to think about and you want to be able to eat mindfully and mm. know what and why you're putting it on your plate. And, um, you know, we thought about obviously one of the things that came back after the Eat Lancet report was, well, this idea of not eating much fish or much, much meat, it doesn't work for certain communities, it's going to leave them malnourished. So when it comes to fish, what about these small communities that maybe rely on fishing for their livelihood? Yeah, I, I think, you know, small communities, there are some that may need to continue until an alternative source of food or income can be generated. But that's not the majority of humans on this planet. And certainly for the majority of humans, eating fish is not necessary. And certainly from an environmental point of view, it's not sustainable. You know, fish obtain their omega-3s from marine algae and, and so can humans. I take a supplement um, when I remember. I don't always take it, but I do eat my walnuts and my flax and my chia and all the other lovely foods we mentioned. But, you know, I'm also really excited to hear about companies that are finding more novel and new ways and sustainable ways of incorporating the marine algae into our food systems you know and leaving leaving fish alone really where they belong yeah so talking of leaving fish alone mm. and maybe sort of on a what's for dinner front yeah what about plant-based fish alternatives yeah yeah obviously there are lots of um plant-based fish alternatives on this podcast we generally advocate for whole food plant-based diet we know that that's better for you than any of the sort of convenience offerings or processed plant-based foods but you know sometimes I think if someone's transitioning to a plant-based diet um, or if they need to have easy quick meal or they want to try and taste something that is familiar to them or they miss fish, you know, everyone around them is having, I don't know, fish and chips and, or, you know, their child wants a fish finger sandwich, <laughs> you know, what, what can we suggest? And there are lots of things available, some better than others. And, you know, we can certainly mention a few that we, we eat or that we are aware of, you know, I think for, 
sort of very seasoned whole food plant-based eaters it's worth making things from scratch you know um, it takes a bit more time or effort but um, if you're interested in cooking or you're excited about being in the kitchen which I think some of us are there are lots of recipes online um, from how to make vegan smoked salmon marinating you know strips of carrot and things like nori how to make fish cakes with you know lovely ingredients like jackfruit or banana blossom I tend to use a lot of chickpea tuna recipes online I like a chickpea tuna sandwich that's one of my personal favorites don't know if you like a chickpea tuna sandwich Claire I like it when someone else makes it I've never really got that excited about making it myself but if it's on a if it's on a sort of plant-based cafe option yeah definitely go for it okay Um, I have to make it for you then one day I've got I, I sort of end up making my own recipe with whatever I've got in mixing in gherkins and dill or whatever I've got in vegan mayonnaise or vegan soya yogurt and mashing up the tuna and um, a bit of lemon juice salt and pepper it's quite tasty okay right I look forward to one of those sandwiches then <laughs> I mean we've talked haven't we about the you know the different ways of having the homemade vegan fish and chips what's your favorite I've not done it yet actually I keep seeing these tofu recipes that people make it like a sort of fish, tofu fish. Have you made them before? I absolutely love that. Um, <gasps> it's it's a it. treat and it goes against a lot of the basic rules, but the the basis of it is fine. Um, it's a big lump of pressed tofu. You can make a little pocket in there and stuff in some, um, some soy sauce marinated uh, chilies and spring onion, stuff that in there with a you know, little bit of a sort of sweet soy sauce mix or some miso, and then um, wrap the whole thing in a sheet of nori to give yeah. it that kind of seafood touch. Yeah. And then make a batter of your choice. And that could be, you know, that could just be like a sparkling water batter yeah. uh, with some flour and sparkling water, or it might be a beer batter if you want to do that. And just sort of season it well, and then shallow fry it. And then mm. things like marifat peas, um, mm-hmm. they are also high in protein so there's nothing wrong with it really as a, as a meal you could do a lot worse and yeah. um you can add in some sweet potato chips uh done in yeah. the air fryer um, oh, yes. or, or just some, some normal chip wedges you know as a as a kind of treat you wouldn't want to have it every night but I think it's a it's a good option so you actually stuff the tofu do you put what do you do just slice it in half or um no I just sort of get a block of a a block of tofu press it yeah and then um cut when I say cut a pocket I just mean cut a little kind of elliptical slit in it so you've got some space to stuff in uh oh you know what I I I made that sound not very good it's because I forgot to say Mm. it's good to soak some shiitake mushrooms and mix those up with the soy sauce and the chili and the spring onion and stuff those in um it just makes it a bit more interesting that sounds really good right so you come to mine for sandwiches and I'll come to yours for a proper vegan fish and chips yeah Nice. Yeah. I mean, I I have less time for the banana blossom fish and chips because nutritionally, mm. um, when I've looked at banana blossom, it, it doesn't, it, it's very flaky and it's very fish-like, but other mm. than that, it doesn't have so much going for it. True. Yeah. I think tofu and chickpeas and those sort of things would be better. And as you say, you get the flavor from the nori um, or, you know, the gherkins or the vinegar, you know, other things. And what about shop-bought things if people wanted to buy fish alternatives do you have any recommendations there yeah I mean 
I looked a few things up because I think it's important to know that they're there, particularly mm. if you've maybe got older kids who've recently started eating plant-based, they're, they're going to want to have things that they're familiar with. Some of the better ones seem to be the Aldi fishless fingers because they're made from a wheat protein. Um, there's corn scampi, which has got a good protein content. But perhaps the ones that were highest in protein were the Moving Mountains fishless fingers because they had about 10 grams of protein and 100 grams. That's good. More expensive, but even better in terms of what you're packing into a processed food um, is that that's done by a company called Future Farm. So they've got, well, they've developed a more equivalent plant-based fish and they use mi- microalgae, mm. soya, pea and chickpea protein to produce a gluten-free tuna, flaky tuna, which is high in protein fiber and because of the microalgae, it offers equivalent omega-3s with about, I think on the packet it says 183 milligrams per 100 grams. Okay. I have not tried that yet. Future Farm, did you say? Yeah. Okay. Any ideas where you can get that from or should I Google it? I bought it once, that one. I'm pretty sure I got that. Just in Sainsbury's, I think. But yeah, I'm I'm not absolutely sure. And what was your Um, verdict, Claire? Did you like it? I actually thought it was almost too convincing of tuna. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think for me personally, I've sort of moved on a little bit from anything that's, that's too much like fish. Okay, how interesting. Well, there you go. That's a, that's an interesting option. I mean, I think, you know, as we mentioned before, we would always say there's no substitute for whole foods in terms of, you know, best things you can eat. But as you say, it's good to know that there are, you know, convenience foods. If some people do need them once in a while, they're better for the environment, if anything. And of course, they are cruelty free. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes when you feel a pressure to keep other people happy, there's there's even you can make really convincing um, fish sushi using oh, the yeah. soya tuna fish roll, which is quite expensive, but it, it it looks convincing. If that's what you find appetizing, because that's the appearance you're expecting, it's a it's a good substitute, and it's got protein in it as well. Yeah, there are there are many options, and I think there's more and more, isn't there? It seems to be an area ever ever growing area in the sort of food industry. Um, but I'd I'd rather stick to your chickpea tuna sandwich oh I love a chickpea tuna sandwich Mm. it's the best (laughs) well that was a really great discussion Claire thank you for for that and I hope that that's at least provided the listeners with some you know interesting new ideas some things to read about some things to go away and and perhaps learn more about as usual the links will be in the show notes so people can read a few of the, the articles and the studies that we've mentioned. Yeah, hope people enjoy that. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet, and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice. So please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.